Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Today, I'm fortunate to have with me Kirsten Wilder. Kirsten graduated from Georgia State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in criminal justice with a concentration on legal studies. She currently works at a private criminal defense law firm, and she will begin law school in the fall and focus on criminal and constitutional law. Good morning, Kirsten, and thank you for being here today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So today we want to keep talking about comprehensive sex education, and you are one of the founders and advocates of Students for Comprehensive Sex Education. Can you tell us how that program was started? So <laughs> senior year, we were all seniors um, at Mary Persons High School. We were going through one of our yearly routine sex ed classes. You know, we get out of class and we go, we listen to speakers, get some information for a few days out of the week. And we were hearing things over a course of a few days, listening to the speakers, reading the book, and it just wasn't sitting right. The things that were being said were insulting. The information that was being presented was questionable. And it got to a point where we were like, we're educated. You know, we can figure this out on our own. We can come to our administration and let them know that this isn't what we think, you know, should be in our school. So we did our own research on it. We got together and the very first thing we did was research. So we didn't want to bring anything to the administration that you know, it was just an opinion. We just don't like it, you know? So we did our research. We went through the book page by page. We went back to the site, site by site. We looked at every single website to every single link that was in that book. We looked up every single source to make sure that we were presenting accurate information about this program. And we found even more unsettling things the more we got through the book, things that unsettled us even more so than what we were hearing in those classes. So we got together. We did that information. We brought it to our administration. Wow, that is so bold. As teenagers, basically, you guys did that. You know, I've had things said that the science is clear about abstinence-only education, that it's useless at its best and counterproductive at its worst, and that the abstinence-only programs tend to spread misinformation and sexist stereotypes, and that people have even spoken in quotes that say that Women gauge their happiness and judge their success by their relationships and men's happiness and success hinge on their accomplishments. Can you speak to, you know, some of what you've seen an abstinence-only sex education do to teenagers? So I did more research as far as what abstinence-centered and abstinence-only research does as far as teens. There was a congressionally mandated study done in um, 2007 that found that abstinence-centered, abstinence-based sex education actually doesn't do anything to prevent, delay, or stop the sex life of teenagers. It doesn't do anything to affect sexually transmitted diseases or infections. It's just a way to tell—it's really fear-mongering, honestly. Just telling people, you know, if you have sex— all these myriad of bad things are going to come flooding down from heaven. You're going to go to hell. Everything bad is just going to happen to you. You're going to get pregnant. Your life is over. You're going to get a disease. It doesn't rely on facts. It doesn't rely on it being the best choice for that individual. It relies on scaring teenagers who don't know better into believing that this is the route that they should go because, well, if not, their life is going to be terrible. 
Now, as an OBGYN, I've seen young people, you know, have sexual intercourse for the first time and they say that I didn't know I could get pregnant and they ended up with me because they come in as a teenage pregnant mother. So, you know, people do get pregnant from not abstaining and having sex. I mean, how can the education help? Because there are problems with teenage pregnancy, you know, and the foolproof way to not get pregnant as a teenager is to be abstinent. But that might not be practical. So can you speak to what are just the practical steps? Having sex is a part of uh, being a human being, is a part of human sexuality. But having knowledge can also prevent unwanted consequences. So can you speak to how this education can help and the absence of it can and truly be have untoward consequences? Okay, so I would first like to say abstinence is definitely the foolproof way to prevent STDs, STIs, um, and teenage pregnancy. However, it's not realistic among every single teenager that comes through the hallways of a high school, especially not in this country, in this state, or in this town. So essentially, with comprehensive sex education is the best alternative, and it doesn't remove abstinence at all. It's still one of the options. However, it just teaches teenagers, if you decide that this is the step you're ready for without your parents around, without anyone else around that can influence you. It's, it's just you and who you're with at the time. And you're in that moment. You're in that heat of the moment. These are the steps you need to take to be protected, to protect yourself, how to put the condom on correctly, how to speak to your OBGYN about, you know, birth control or even your parents about birth control, how to obtain birth control, the different methods that women and men can both use to protect against pregnancies, STDs, STIs. Abstinence only, the issue with it, even though it is foolproof, the issue with it is that when you only teach that you are leaving children and teenagers open to a wide range of different avenues that they are not prepared for, nor do they have knowledge of, because you're focusing on one option, one one thing. You're not focusing on the alternatives, because the reality is not all teenagers are going to be abstinent, and the reality is not all teenagers have been abstinent. There are several people who can speak to that, and even the people who have taught these programs to us can probably attest to themselves not ever being abstinent before marriage. So one of my best analogies for comprehensive sex education and why it's a better alternative is parents teach their children how to swim or they get their children a swimming instructor. And you don't teach your child how to swim because of, you know, fear of that they'll drown or something. It's like protection. Comprehensive sex education is protection. So you teach your child how to swim, not saying go get in the water, go play around in the water every single day, go do this, go hop in and out. It's if you ever so decide to get in the water, you are protected. You know how to swim and you know how to get back out safely. And comprehensive sex education, in my opinion, is that if you so decide to have sex without anyone around, without anyone able to influence you, you know how to engage and protect yourself and get back out safely. Wow, that's so powerful. Now, let me ask you, do you know of a teenager that got pregnant and how how did that affect them in their in their life growing up in this particular city i watched several get pregnant throughout the schools beginning in middle school and i want to say the earliest i saw a girl get pregnant had to have been 7th grade and up until graduation i saw several getting pregnant on and off i have an older sister who 
got pregnant. Well, I have two sisters who've been pregnant and it's not easy for them. And they were adults when they decided to have kids. And I watched them watched it not be easy for them. So I can only imagine as a teenager who has yet to experience everything life has to offer, who has yet to, you know, leave town, leave home, do something for yourself. I can only imagine the difficulties and realizing where your life is now. I, as an OBGYN, I've had to care for pregnant teenagers. And a lot of them come because they have at times been ostracized by their families and their friends and they're lonely and they're scared. And it's just a very difficult place to be. And at times, indeed, the teenagers did not believe that that one sexual encounter or that first sexual encounter could have led to a pregnancy. And at times, the teenagers didn't know they were pregnant until they had an obvious bulge in their, you know, abdomen. You know, I wonder if a more comprehensive sex education would have given them options. Could you speak to that? Um, yes, I certainly believe that comprehensive sex education will give teenagers options because right now with abstinence-based uh, programs and abstinence-centered programs, there's only one option, you know, and if you haven't, if you're not choosing that option, you know, like I said, bad things will happen. And for the people who are already sexually active, if it's not focusing on abstinence, it then focused on being a born-again version. It's like, well, if you've already had sex, there's still time for you to stop, essentially. And I can only imagine what being taught proper ways to put on contraception and proper ways to speak to your parents or guardians or whoever or a doctor about you know, contraception or even having an actual medical professional coming into our schools to speak with us and having students have that space and that freedom to pull them aside maybe before class, the next class, and just, hey, like, can I speak with you about birth control? I know you mentioned that. You know, even just having that could do wonders for teenage pregnancy, teenage STIs, teenage STDs. So do you think the adults and the educators are just avoiding the elephant in the room by saying that, you know, we're going to preach abstinence only and the young people in the room are thinking, well, we're, we're already past that stage, you know. You know, some of us are already engaged in sexual activities. We just need to know how to do this safely. I think when it comes to the adults, you know, I have to think back to how they were brought up, you know. A few years back or, you know, a couple of decades back, there was a time where when a girl got pregnant, she was sent away to live with another relative. She was sent out of the state. She was sent to a different city. It was always a, a shameful thing to engage. And so these adults who, you know, experienced that maybe with a family member, close hand or a friend or even just, you know, having heard the stories, they're now adults. They're now grown up. And, you know, as Aaron said uh, previously, some of them didn't even experience sex education themselves. So I don't know if they're completely avoiding the elephant in the room so much as they themselves don't know how to address it because they themselves were never taught. So they don't know what to say. I know with my personal experience, my parents never spoke to me about sex to this day. I was just fortunate enough to have the mindset to go and find things out for myself, but not everyone digs deeper. Not everyone goes out and seeks certain knowledge. And I think that's the same with our parents. 
is it too much for a parent to expect, you know, for like their child to stay in school, finish school, don't get pregnant early, you know, have a job, have a degree, and maybe get married before you have a child, you know, because you speak to the fact that, you know, back in the day, the pregnant lady was sent away, presumably because the parents were embarrassed or they were unhappy about a, a teenager being pregnant. But looking at it from the parents' point of view, would it be too much to for a parent to expect their child to, you know, please stay in school, please focus on your education, please live a safe life, get married, have children, maybe when your body is more ready to carry a baby? I'm just asking that from the other side of the aisle, so to speak. I don't think it's too much to expect at all. I think any parent would want for their child what they think is best. I do think that if you want that from your child, you should be able and ready to figure out or learn some information for yourself that you can pass down to your child. I know most people kind of leave it at just stick to the books, but you have to understand that, for example, when babies are born, they're curious, they're into everything. We're teenagers, but there's still almost a baby inside of us. Like all of this stuff is new to us. We're going through a different, brand new phase of life. And so we're curious. You know, we see things on TV, we see things in movies, we see things within our own family structure. So I think parents should be prepared that in the same way that we're babies are curious, teenagers are also curious because it's a brand new phase of life. Boys and girls no longer have cooties. People are starting to look more attractive. Our bodies are changing. We're starting to experience feelings and emotions we've never felt or experienced before. So I think while it's not too much to expect, parents should be prepared for the fact that their child is now in a different phase of their life with new curiosities. And if they want to help their child, the best way to do it is to go and get that information and make sure they're providing it to their child. Kirsten, I want to speak to you about your professional career development. If you're going into law, what do you hope to achieve with a career in law? Um, I hope to achieve reform, innovation, abolition. I just hope to make the criminal justice field a better place for, I would say, those not fortunate enough to pay their way out of it. Oh, so you've seen some things in the criminal justice system that you feel that, you know, you want to help change, address. What are some of the things that you've seen? Some of the things I've seen and even working with uh, the law firm I work with now, a lot of issues that arise with the court system I've watched get solved fairly easy. Sometimes easy, sometimes things are difficult, but I've watched things be fairly easy, such as, you know, reducing charges or expungements or anything like that. And I realized that a lot of people don't have the luxury of that easy access with the criminal justice system because, you know, they can't afford a private attorney who has the time and commitment to go and talk to a prosecutor or a solicitor or a DA. And there are public defenders who are getting the cases on their desk the day of court and going in like, I don't know who this person is. I don't know their background. I don't know what to say that could possibly help them. I just think there's a, a large disadvantage within the criminal justice system that largely has to do with what your income is, what you can and cannot afford to get into or get out of with the criminal justice system. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's constitutional. Wow. Wow. Kirsten, this is such a, a noble thing to want to do with your career. What are the kinds of people that you think 
could have better access to a more equitable criminal justice system? So it most certainly widely affects minorities disproportionately. It's crazy. And it's actually why I got into this, because I realized how it affected people that look like me. It was, for whatever reason, it's a a bigger uphill battle. Well, not for every reason, but it's a larger uphill battle for people that look like me in this system. And it's crazy to me, just to be blunt about it. It's completely ridiculous. I don't understand it. I think people who have been in charge have, in a way, been kind of lazy. Not just lazy, I also think they've been purposefully harmful as well. Um, And with minorities, you know, there are more people incarcerated now that share my skin color than were enslaved. And I think that is completely ludicrous. I think that is completely ridiculous. I don't understand it. You know, we have states legalizing marijuana now, and there are still people that look like me in, in jail for years and years for even the smallest of offenses. And, you know, there are movements to decriminalize weed or marijuana. And it's fine. It's great for the people that come next. But I do think there should be something done about the people that are already inside. Wow. Kirsten, can you speak to us as to, you know, what goes on in the mind of a teenager that makes them want to, you know, at times take that chance of, at times having, you know, unprotected sex that could lead to pregnancy or not paying attention to some of the sex education that they have received? Is it rebellion? Is it a lack of knowledge of consequences? Is it just, you know, being a teenager, hormonal? Is it being irresponsible? What are some of the things that that, that, that goes through the mind of a teenager? Like for a, a young lady to end up pregnant, we just want to try to see things from that point of view. Um, So I don't believe any teenager is purposely trying to get pregnant. I'm sure there are some anomalies out there of people or teenagers who have tried to purposely get pregnant, but I don't think anyone, you know, goes into a situation and says, I want to come out of this with a life-changing decision, a life-changing, you know, consequence. Like I said earlier, I think it's just, we're curious. We're in a brand new stage in our lives. Like I said, boys no longer have cooties. They're cute now. They're attractive. Someone taught them how to wear aftershave and, you know, they smell good. And it's like, what do you do with all these feelings? You know, when you get butterflies or your palms get sweaty and you get hard eyes for someone And they're just so cute and you're alone and you're flirting. And I don't think it's anything that's purposefully done. I think, you know, it kind of just happens again. Like, and to be blunt about it, let's say you just get horny. I mean, teenagers get horny. Adults get, it's a human nature thing. You get horny. What do you do? Like no one's teaching kids what they should do to alleviate or do anything about their feelings. So I think we as humans do what, is human nature, which is sexual intercourse. Kirsten, you talk about people, young people having burning sexual desires and not knowing what to do with it. Older people have burning sexual desires too, and at times they don't know what to do with it. But I know people have used all kinds of, you know, mechanisms to deal with this because, um, you know, you have to control your emotions. There are times that you want to pee, you want to urinate, but because it's not a socially appropriate place, you control your emotions until you get to a bathroom and then you can urinate. And also for burning sexual desire, how 
can we help a teenager with raging hormones know that there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to let go of these burning sexual desires? Okay, so you mentioned ping, and what I can think about is we as humans know how to do that because we're potty trained. Someone taught us how to hold it, when to go, and it's the same with sex. Teach people how to do it correct or not do it correctly, how to protect themselves if they so decide to do it, and then provide alternatives. Um, and the first step isn't even providing alternatives, is having the space for a teenager to even admit that. A lot of teenagers aren't just going to walk up to their parents and be like, hey, look, I really like this guy. I don't know what I'm feeling right now. This is kind of crazy. But a lot of a lot of teenagers don't have that space. So the first step is creating the space um, where they be with a parent or guardian or a sibling. The, the first step is the creating the space. And then and a safe space. I yeah, hear that. Safe space. So you you don't want to create a space in which you're going to be judged, but you want to create a safe space, right? Yes, because if you if a teenager feel like they're going to be judged or they're going to get you know punished or backlash for natural feelings that they're experiencing, they'll never share again. A lot of I think a lot of problems arise when teenagers try to figure it out themselves. So with this, it's just better to educate yourselves on the alternatives for alleviating the pain, such as, <laughs> bluntly put, self-pleasuring, running, a cold shower, just anything that can temporarily or momentarily divert those intense feelings of desire. You know, one of the unintended consequences that some teenagers face after having sex is they have you know, sexually transmitted infections. And some of the sexually transmitted infections are not detected. For instance, one of the most common sexually transmitted infection, chlamydia, it's called a silent infection because some of the young ladies don't even know that they have this infection because uh, at times the symptoms don't present early. And some of the infections can be very devastating in that they can affect the reproductive system of the women and they are actually can be the number one, one of the major causes of infertility later in life. And at times, some of the young women don't know. They don't know the, the impact that some of these uh, STIs can have. So with the sexual education, we want to definitely make it clear that at times when there is no protection, there's no barriers, that women can develop STIs and there can be a delay in diagnosis and treatment of the STIs. And then there can be untoward consequences to the reproductive tract of the women. And fast forward later in life, they come to see someone like me as an OBGYN, an OBGYN with fertility problems. And then I have to dig back into their earlier years and their you know, sexual experiences in their earlier years. I mean, do you want to speak to some of these instances? Yes. So STDs and STIs are incredibly common. And I think they're also still a, a taboo subject. No one wants to say, you know, I have this disease, I have this infection, or this is what I think is going on with me. There's a huge stigma against 
even getting tested. Like there's a movement to increase, you know, awareness about testing and going to get tested and getting tested regularly. And I think that's incredibly important, but there's still a, for whatever reason, there's still just a a human block up of, of judgment. You know, sometimes things just happen. And, you know, even with towns like this, cities like Forsyth, I can't imagine being a teenager and going to the clinic for an STD like evaluation or something. Like we said earlier, everyone knows everyone here. Everyone talks. It can be scary. And I think a a large part of it is sometimes people don't want to know. You know, ignorance can certainly be bliss, especially if there are no prevalent symptoms. Sometimes people don't want to know because the reality after you find out that something is wrong with you is a lot scarier than just pretending it doesn't exist at all. And, you know, as an OBGYN, I want to put that message out to young people that ignorance should not be bliss because, you know, there are some STIs that we need to diagnose very early and we need to treat early. And at times, there are times when we treat based on the history, even before waiting for all the test results to come back. You know, if a teenager comes and says, I think I have been exposed and we evaluate the history and we find a strong case for a possible exposure, we go ahead and treat because early treatment can prevent a lot of devastating effects. But it's good to hear from you that, you know, some of the barriers that the teenagers face is that, number one, at times they live in a small town. At times they just don't want their business out there. And at times they are scared. And at times they just really don't want to know. And so, you know, my message as a healthcare professional to the teenagers is that, I mean, you know, if you think you've been exposed, you you just have to get treatment. Now, we would it be easy for a teenager to go to a different county to get treated where health information will be more protected? I certainly think that's a possibility, but it's not completely foolproof because, you know, some people don't have the access of going to different counties or different cities to hide their business. You know, some people have to stay where they are and get treatment where they are. So I think a large part of it is honestly just going to have to come with knowing they need to do it, knowing that it is imperative for their health and not caring what anyone could possibly think. Because, you know, some of these diseases are life and death. Some of these diseases affect whether or not you can give life. And a lot of it is just going to have to come with being okay with being aware of what's going on with your body. Wow. Yeah, I want to speak more to that because actually now that I think about that, that's a a big issue. And you're right. And I forgot to mention that some of the teenagers, they just don't want to know. They just don't want to know. I think some of the proponents for the abstinence-only programs push the programs because there are just some a lot of untoward effects from you know, early sexual exposure. One of them is developing abnormal pap smears that can lead to cervical cancers. And one of the scientific reasons that we found that the way the teenager cervix, the way the cells are arranged, and with early sexual exposure, the way the cells are arranged puts them at risk for having abnormal cells after early sexual exposures. And cervical cancer is one of the preventable cancers that women can have. And so we are advocating for young ladies not to have early 
you know, unprotected sex because it can increase the incidence of abnormal pap smears and persistently abnormal pap smears that can lead to cervical cancers. Also, one of the devastating effects is that of an STI in which the, and it, it appears sexist, but the women, you know, I'm an OBGYN, but I know all these infections that affect the women. So uh, an STI can be silent and be undiagnosed and can have devastating effects in the present or in the future. And so, you know, what are all the barriers that a young person has to just acknowledging some of these effects of not being abstinent? So I think when it comes to teenagers, a lot of times we're told things are serious, but sometimes it doesn't really resonate with us how serious something is until it happens to, you know, someone close to us or even to our us like, you know, as people. So when you're going through life, I can recall back when I was a teenager, like life was just strawberries and poppy seed fields and, you know, everything was taken care of. I didn't really put too much thought into, you know, things being overly serious, um, especially not regarding sex. So I think a large part of it is the information. Like comprehensive sex education, it doesn't remove abstinence because, again, that is the 100% effective way to, you know, prevent all of this. But with comprehensive sex education, it even goes as far as teaching you um, what diseases aren't preventable, you know, from condoms. And I think people just have to have the information. Like, we can't expect teenagers to make decisions based off of information that they do not have. That is powerful. Because I think I think you said the key is that young people, they they don't think things that deeply, you know, that is going to have such serious consequences. Kirsten, as an OBGYN, now on the other side, seeing, you know, women that are no longer teenagers, now they're older, and now they're having some of the problems associated with early sexual exposures, you know, and some of the problems include, at times, some of the women have chronic pelvic pain from STIs and they've had a teenage pregnancy or they have emotional trauma. What message should we put out there to a, a teenager that is young, happy-go-lucky, not a care in the world, parents are taking care of everything, but now you are doing the things that older people do. What responsibilities come with that? And what should you know as a teenager? As a teenager engaging in adult activity, you have to be prepared for the things that the adults go through. Anything you may see happen on the TV shows to adults or movies or even the adults in your life, such as we watch adults uh, get pregnant. We've seen teachers, you know, who are married be pregnant like it happens. And I think people should be prepared for it. And I will say the positive about comprehensive sex education is that most of the programs that we looked into as alternatives to our own abstinence-centered program began in elementary school. And it didn't begin in elementary school teaching, oh, this is how to have sex. Because, you know, they're in elementary school, but it begins to teach smaller things like bad touch, good touch, consent. And it begins to heighten a child's awareness to their own body so that by the time they become teenagers, they're more aware of what could happen. And they're taking it a lot more seriously because they were taught at a young age 
Like, this is my body. This is my space. It's my job to keep me healthy. I want you to speak a little bit to consent. Okay. Like, okay, you know, I, I want you to touch me. I don't want you to touch me. I, you can kiss me today. W- what are the things that a teenager should know when it comes to giving consent to certain things about uh, a sexual relationship? Consent is incredibly important, and that's another downside of abstinence-centered, abstinence-based um, education. Consent isn't really taught. And consent is one of the main things that can prevent, you know, sexual assaults. You know, there are plenty of women out there who have been sexually assaulted and don't know it. Plenty of women who have been sexually assaulted and find out or, you know, it dawns on them later on in life or a few years later, a few months later. And consent is essentially what it is just no is no. Like it's always said no is no. So if I say yes today and I decide no tomorrow, it means respect that I'm not. I just don't want to. I shouldn't have to explain. No one should ever have to explain why they're saying no. If they don't want to, they don't want to. You know, don't force anyone to do anything they're making it clear they don't want to do because then it begins to get into the territory of sexual assault. And with comprehensive sex education, not only does it teach consent, but it's more sex positive. It makes it clear that men don't own anyone's body. They're not entitled to anyone's body. They're not entitled to a a certain response from a girl they may like or a girl they find attractive. It removes the entitlement as the education. And that's something that abstinence-centered, abstinence-based is largely lacking. You know, women are the commodities. We're told to keep our virtue. And men, you know, boys will be boys. And it's like, boys are expected to just be boys and do what they do. And women are almost shamed in a way. And is that teaching that makes boys think, okay, well, I'm just being a boy. Like, you know, don't be a prude or, you know, let me do this. Like, I'm just a boy. Boys are doing boy things. Like, let me do it. And because women are, it's taught that women are commodities through these programs or, you know, something to conquer, it blurs the sexual assault line in the minds of a lot of teenagers because What did they do with that information? You have boys who feel entitled to a certain thing because they're boys. They're taught as part of their growth. And you have women who are trying to say no because they're taught, you know, if I do this, um, X, Y, and Z, my life is over and all of this is going to happen to me. Um, So consent is very simply put, as it's always been simply put, no means no. And if there is not a yes, that doesn't mean yes. The absence of a no is still not a yes until someone blatantly verbatim gives you the permission to proceed or do something it is not their body language it is not a smile they might give you or a movement they do until they blatantly give you permission out of their own mouths assume that everything is a no that's not a yes wow that's powerful now in the abstinence only group i'm sure there there is there is a group of teenagers that believe in this abstinence only like even looking at your cohort group of students are they in the minority and you know how do you perceive they've been made to feel for being in the abstinence until marriage only group are they looked down on are they made fun of what is the thinking nowadays To my knowledge, it's just personal choice. Let people choose what to do with their own bodies. If you don't want to have sex, don't have sex. 
if you do want to have sex, this is how you can do it and protect yourself. And with comprehensive sex education, it doesn't remove abstinence as an option. It still teaches abstinence. But the issue is these students who may want abstinence-only education are getting what they're wanting, but there are still a large amount of students who, let's say, come into these programs who have already done it. Now now they're like, now what for me? You know, I remember in ninth grade, there was a girl who was pregnant in our sex education class, and they were talking about, you know, getting pregnant and your life being over. And I'm like, goodness, like, she's right here. <laughs> and that's incredibly discouraging. So I just think comprehensive sex education doesn't take away from abstinence-only education. It adds abstinence as an option, but it then provides information to those students who need it. So if you are a student who wants abstinence only, you're going to get what you want. But it's also okay for the student next to you who doesn't share your same circumstances or upbringing to get what they need to get as well. Wow. Kirsten Wilder, thank you so much. So for your program, where, where is your program now? What What is being done with it? And, you know, what do you plan to do further with your Students for Comprehensive Sex Education program that you co-founded? So um, we paused for a minute. All of us went to uh, college, university to pursue our individual career goals. But we worked a lot in Monroe County. We came back after our freshman year in college. Uh, we spoke at a board meeting and... Last we knew and last we were told, we got them to implement a committee of parents and star students and, you know, community leaders who could come together and vote on, you know, ed sex education. I'm unsure if that uh, committee is still continuing to this moment, but the last thing we were able to do in Forsyth before, you know, they were overhearing it from us was implementing that committee, which I think was incredibly successful, even if they did keep abstinence only or abstinence based only because eventually there's going to be a parent or student that joins that committee who can probably make the changes we are trying to make. Moving forward, I do think we're just uh, maintaining the advocacy area. There are a lot of, you know, people who reached out to us throughout the years who were trying to battle abstinence only education in their own schools. And I think right now we're just offering the information we have, helping anyone who needs help with it, because it was an uphill battle for us. And we were successful in some things. We weren't successful in everything. But I think the the real success is being able to have made a mark and impact and adding even one change. So moving forward, like I said, we're just going to keep advocating for it. We live in a, a Bible belt, so we have to be advocating for it continuously because everyone loves abstinence only and abstinence based education for whatever reason so we'll just be here still beeping the horn for comprehensive wow Kirsten Wilder thank you so much you are such a you know strong individual we wish you luck with your career in law and we're just you know looking forward to the great things you're going to do to help people so thank you so much for coming to our program. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming to Cocoa Pods podcast, a feature of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. And have a good day. <laughs>